From understanding the news of today to explaining principles which will last a lifetime, you're listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, equipping pastors and church leaders across rural America and beyond to meet the challenges of ministry while advancing the kingdom of God in your local community and in our world. Hello, friends. This is Michael Bond, and I'm here with Pastor Todd Stanley. Hey, hey, everybody. Okay, so I want to talk about a variety of things today, uh, from legal liability inside the church, contracts, that sort of thing. And I want to get into how a church should draft justice into their punitive policy. So we're thinking in terms of if someone inside your church misbehaves or they're in living in unrepentant sin, how should a church view that particular issue while keeping the value of justice in their minds. Yeah. And then I want to talk, maybe if we get to this, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the consequences that we pay if we begin to eliminate the reality of God's wrath from our worldview. And so, okay, let's, let's so, start. So easy stuff. Oh yeah, easy stuff. Easy stuff. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus suggests that oath-taking and promise-making is of evil. I think he says this because... The only reason we need to sign contracts or make promises in the first place is because we are untrustworthy by nature. How would you characterize Summit's use of contracts? Uh, What is our relationship with lawyers? What are some safeguards every church should have in place when it comes to legal liability? Well, you know, uh, so first let me say that I am not... Uh, heavily involved in those aspects of our church organization. Like, I, I wish that Mel were here; he could speak to this stuff a lot, lot better than I can. Um, I will say this: uh, I know that we employ lawyers mostly for financial stuff, right? We want to make sure that we are abiding by the law. We want to make sure that we are. Uh, you know, doing our due diligence in terms of um, how we are operating and, and under, you know, make sure that we're doing things legally, that we're above board, that we're, you know, so mostly in regard to our financial stuff um, is when we have employed lawyers. Um, of course, you know, transactions when we've purchased buildings or properties, you know, that kind of thing when we're building new campuses. Those Those are typically the times that we uh, engage with lawyers. Uh, thankfully, we've not really had any kind of legal scandal, kind of, you know, no one has tried to sue the church or uh, anything like that. So we've not had to engage in legal operations in that way. Uh, I would say for us, you know, uh, especially in terms of people within the church body, we want to handle those according to the scriptures, right? Which means that we want to do that within the context of the body, you know, through our church leadership, through a process of church discipline, if there's something that has to do with that, or just if there's a conflict, we want to resolve that conflict biblically. So we, you know, we follow Matthew 18, where we we go to the person who uh, has wronged us or has um, has some beef, right? Mm, and yeah. we, we sit down and we try to talk through those and figure that out. Um, and so that's typically the way that we've approached that. I don't know if that's really a great answer to your yeah, question. Yeah, no, it, it does. It opens it up. So one of the ways in which we differentiate ourselves from 
maybe like a secular corporation is that we try to handle these um, particular conflicts or potential sources of liability internally right biblically rather than through automatically deferring to like a third party arbitration or some kind of human resources uh, company that we might be contracting or something like that so we're, we're trying to do this stuff inside and we're trying to do it person to person interpersonally yeah rather than having like default legal channels that we would go through if any kind of conflict arises correct and so you know uh it, i'm talking about kind of run-of-the-mill conflict at this point. I'm not talking about, uh, you know, there are certainly areas uh, of vulnerability or liability that a church needs to be aware of. So, for example, you can't serve with children or youth in our church without having significant background checks, right? Because we want to protect ourselves from liability in those ways. We won't, And more than that, more importantly than the liability issues, we want to make sure that we are doing our due diligence to protect children, to protect young people who, you know, uh, and know who that they are being exposed to. We vet those people well. Uh, and so I think if a church does their due diligence on the front end, uh, you know, that that they can mitigate a lot of this kind of stuff. And it's just good leadership. It's just good. I mean, our job as as pastors, right? Our job as church leaders, we're we're to shepherd our people well, right? Part of the part of the role of a shepherd is to protect the sheep. And so we want to make sure that we're doing that. And that doesn't mean so for example, if someone comes to you into your church, they give their life to Christ, you do a background check and and they have a history that would prevent them from working with children. That doesn't mean that they can't be in your church. It doesn't mean there's not a place for them to serve. Uh, but we want to make sure that we are number one, protecting the kids, number two, protecting that person as well. If if this you know, if they've got a history that says that says working around kids might not be good for them, you know, then then don't allow it, right? Find another place for them to serve. Yeah, and so it would be a dangerous illusion for any church to think, well, we're too small to need this kind of due diligence, or we don't need to... Uh, so so I, I'm, I'm sensing that the, the legal representation that we would employ here, uh, and I use the term employ loosely, I don't know if we actually have these people on retainer, um, <laughs> But what we're trying to do is compliance. We're trying to do liability protection. And the way we do liability protection might come through primarily through due diligence at the front end. And I'm trying to imagine a world in which, say, I'm leading a church and I have 50 to 70 people on a weekend. And I get some insight into what Summit is doing in terms of their due diligence and all of their different coverages and the things that they try to do. And I think to myself, well, that's that's good for them, but they have to protect this, this revenue that they're bringing in every year that they've got a much larger operation. I don't need to do those things. That would be a mistake to think that way, right? For a a person who's leading a smaller congregation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in, in terms of those kinds of, you know, like background checks and that kind of thing, you know, the financial consideration is, is really far down the list for us. Uh, and it should be for for any pastor. Our people are our first priority, uh, and you know, and really, as you were talking about, you know, keeping people on retainer, uh, we don't employ a lawyer for that kind of thing. Uh, we use a uh, we use a company called Checker, and it's fairly inexpensive. They do the background checks for you. We do do an additional layer for 
for kids and youth workers like they do an FBI background check where they get their fingerprints and that kind of thing. Uh, and we, we, you know, as a church, we pay for that for those folks. And they, there's an office that they go to here in town to do that. Um, and so, um, but that's, you know, again, it's more about protecting the, the, the people that, that God's entrusted to us than it is about the financial consideration. Okay. Yeah, for sure. So what are some things that a Christian can do? If we take this back to the individual level, what are some things that a Christian can do to make him or herself so trustworthy? I'm trying to think of what Jesus meant when he, when he's talking about just using, letting your yes be your yes and your no be your no and not making oaths about this and that. Yeah. Um, what are some things that a Christian can do to make himself or herself so trustworthy that that his plain yes and his plain no are more dependable than an ungodly person's promises? Because I think this is presenting the landscape where we want to be operating, right? It's, it's, it's suggesting that it is possible for us to become the kind of people who, if we just say yes to something or we just, uh, agree to something yeah that that agreement and that simple yes will carry more weight than the promises of the world let's say right just show up right so uh if you say yes to something show up like let your yes be yes i mean that's exactly what jesus is talking about there let your yes be yes if if you say that <laughs> Excuse me, sorry. If you say you're going to be somewhere or if you take a particular position on an issue, like be be con, you know, uh be consistent in that. Like uh and and say no when you need to say no, right? And don't 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 say yes to something, don't agree to something that you know you're not going to do, you know. Um don't say you're going to a party and then back out last minute every time, you know, or mm, yeah. you know, the backyard barbecue or that dinner invitation. And you're like, just just say no in the first place if you don't want to, or right. if you can't, or you know. So let your yes be yes and your no be no. And the, as you're consistent, you know, you're not going to have to be like, oh, I promise. I'll, you, there won't be any need for that because right. people yeah. will know if they say yeah, they're going to be there. And so we need to. Part of this is um, an appropriate weighing up of the cost of going back on something that you said because like it, it is extremely costly to do that and so it, it's actually better say you agreed to lead worship on a particular event uh -huh. and then you wake up that day and you feel a little sick like you definitely know you're not 100 percent. yeah you know you're going to get up there and it's not going to be your best showing it's better to give 60 percent in that situation than to not show up absolutely and the only exception to that would be if whoever organized the event reached out to you and said, hey, you look really pale or you just don't yeah. look like you're feeling very yeah. well. I have someone else I can swap in for you. And then they kind of agree with you on that absence. Right. But the cost of just of just not being there is tremendous. It's, it's so much more than... I think sometimes we feel like we need to perform all the time. And it doesn't <laughs> have to be in worship. It could be in conversation. It could be at the backyard barbecue. Like, I don't really feel like socializing. So if I go there, I'm going to be quiet and people are going to think I'm stuck up or people are going to think that I don't like them. They might think that for 30 minutes after you're gone. But then those thoughts are probably going to leave. But what seems like it's going to resonate or what's going to stick with people is if you said you'd be there and then you're not. Yeah. Like, that's huge. Yeah, I mean, it, 
I don't know of very many things that can be more devastating to your relationship with somebody than them thinking that you're not dependable. They just stop asking. They stop counting on you. They stop. And as a pastor, man, that's it's vital that your people know that you they can depend on you, right? If because because you want to be able to speak into their lives, you want to be able to have influence on them. And if you are not dependable, if your yes is not a yes and your no is not a no, then they're going to stop asking. They're going to stop coming to you. They're going to stop looking to you. They're you're going to lose your influence because you have not been consistent. And you have not been clear with your yes and your no. And it won't matter at that point if you're able to preach a brilliant sermon. If you're not dependable in other ways, you're going to lose your influence anyway. Like I think sometimes there's this idea that, well, if I just say the right things from a platform, then I'll be able to gain influence in a person's life. And I think you can do that to some extent. Like there are big personalities who never meet the people who they influence. Sure. Um, but, But they the expectation with them is that you're not going to meet them. Correct. And the pastoral role is so much different, especially in like the rural church. Um, I think you could maybe set an expectation that you're going to be a little bit more reclusive than other pastors are. Like, I don't think there's a standard that every person needs to match. Yeah. I mean, every, every, everybody's different. Every personality is different, you, but just do what you say you're going to do. I mean, it's a, how many times have you heard something along the lines of, you know, he's a great preacher, but, mm-hmm. you know, man, like, that's a big but. <laughs> and it's it's devastating to your ministry um, because most, most of the life transformation that we get to be a part of isn't a result of our sermons. It isn't a result of what we do on the platform on the weekends. In fact, if what we do on the platform on a weekend isn't informed by uh, and undergirded by the relationships that we're building during the week and the, the, the way we conduct ourselves in our community and in our it, it you know, it becomes white noise. Mm-hmm. People aren't going to hang on to it because they're going to come people are going to sit in the pews. And and some of this is not a, is unavoidable. People have opinions. Right. Sometimes they're not founded on truth or you know whatever. But but if they are founded on truth, right? So let's say that you're being that pastor who's inconsistent, who doesn't show up when he says he's going to show up or she's going to show up, you know. And and then there the that you get that reputation. Well, they're a good preacher, but you just can't count on them. Well, then that's the assumption and the notion that's going to be in someone's mind when they come and they sit down in the pew on Sunday. And they may not ever leave your church because, man, maybe they were there before you got there and they're determined they're going to be there when you leave, right? And so Mm -hmm. this is my church. I'm staying. But they're not listening to a thing you have to say because they have already formed an opinion about you uh, because you've not been consistent. Yeah, so people will tend to assess whether or not you care about them before they assess the quality of your ideas and the things that you're presenting. And, and I, I mean, we can say, we can discuss whether or not that's the right way of doing it. I think it is in some sense because interpersonal relationships and love are crucial to the Christian walk. Um, I think that there is some utility in being able to separate a person's ideas from who they are as a person. And, you know, so for instance, when you have like a a super famous, uh, 
Christian theologian, like Ravi Zacharias, for instance, and then, you know, everything allegedly right. that happens with him, you, you don't have to throw his teachings out because you can separate the ideas from the man in some sense. Sure. Um, and I think that there's some utility in viewing your own pastor that way. But I think that we become naive if we think that we can not care about the people we're trying to speak to and still have an impact on their life, especially when we're in such close proximity yeah. to them. Because if you're just online and you're just a, a preacher who's preaching to people who are across the country, then proximity becomes a valid reason for why you're not involved with their life. Yeah. But if you're so, in close proximity to them, you don't have the reason anymore. So let's take the Ravi Zacharias thing, right? So it's one thing for me at a distance to be able to go, well, I can separate the things that he allegedly did from the things that he said because those because the things that he did don't affect me. Let's be honest, right? Mm-hmm. I am at a distance. I am not personally affected by them. It's a much different thing. And this is what we're talking about when we're talking about a pastor of a local church. It's a much, much different thing if I'm one of the workers at those massage parlors who he supposedly, right? right? If mm-hmm. I am intimately affiliated with it, if I am close to it, if Robbie Zacharias was my pastor, mm-hmm. right? And I am, you know, that's a much different prospect. We don't have the luxury, if you want to call it that, of the distance from our right. from our flock, right? We are up close and personal. That's like that's why we're called to, you know, scripture says that we have to live lives that are above reproach. And that's what that's about. Like it in order for us to be to have the the influence that we need to have that God has called us to to carry with our people, we have to be above reproach. And that doesn't mean flawless. It doesn't mean, you know, but it means a willingness to own our junk when we mess up. Uh, and a, well, and to go back to, we've been saying this word a lot, but a consistency in the way that we govern ourselves, in the way that we relate to people, uh, a consistency in keeping our word, you know, all of those things, man, it, like th- these are gospel issues. They're not peripheral things. It's a big yeah. deal. Yeah. And so if you're pastoring a local church and your aim is to become kind of like an Instagram influencer, you're using the wrong vehicle to get there. Like it might feel sometimes like because you have influence in your congregation, it, that might seem like, and because it essentially is a platform, uh-huh. it's not the right it's not the same kind of platform as like an Instagram platform. It's not even the same species of platform. Right. And so if you think that one will just bridge to another, what what you're going to end up doing is ruining the platform that you're on. You're going yeah. to end up destroying the congregation that you do have and in, in, in your efforts to kind of model that thing that you want to be that you're, yeah. that you may potentially are idolizing in the, and I, I bring it up because I do, I think that there's a lot of people who go into, this kind of work because they see like the Stephen Furtick's of the world uh-huh. and they think, okay, well, it, and maybe it's not bad motives. Maybe it's not just, I want to be famous. Maybe it's, if I have a platform like that, I could really do a lot of good. Yeah. But I think that what we see when we watch Stephen Furtick online, like that's not the same thing as the local church in some sense. Like it is no. a local, it is a local church if you go to his church. Right. 
But when we're just engaging with it on the the, the online platform, that's a different kind of platform. And yes. so we, we, we run into problems if we try to treat one like the other or as one as if one can bridge to the other, I think. I think that's yeah. part of it. I mean, your Instagram account is not going to engender and build intimate personal relationships. I mean, and when you think about how many YouTubers they don't leave their basement, right? They are they are I don't know if connecting with is the right word, but they are reaching millions of people sometimes, right? But they don't know those people, right? So it's it's one thing to reach a large number of people with your message. It's another thing to walk with people in relationship. Right? And I'm not saying that it's either or, like right. I am certain, going to your example with Stephen Furtick or any other pastor who's got a large online presence, you know, that streams to lots of places and like, uh, they can do both and. You can have a large reach in, in a, you know, a wide reach from, you know, from a media perspective and with use all of those tools, but that's not going to be the same as that group of people that you're walking through life with, that you're shepherding, that you're pastoring, right? And, and so uh, it's, it doesn't have to be an either or, but if I have to choose one over the other, right? If I'm a pastor of a local church, I, it's got to be the people that God's placed right in front of me every week. Right. Those have to be the people that I give my priority to, that I give my energy to, that that know my life, that the, the fruit of my consistency of my yes being yes and my no being no, that, that those are the people uh, that, you know, that if, if all of the other went away tomorrow, I would still keep doing what I'm doing right now. Yeah. Um, and so it shouldn't be, it should be that the local church that then gains a broad reach, not a broad reach then, you know, that the, it's not a means to right. an end. Right. Yeah. And we're, and we're not saying that one is good and one is bad. We're just, we're saying that they're distinct in their essence Yes. and that, you know, if, if, if they are essentially distinct and if you happen to be charged with a local church you should prioritize that and if you end up with a large reach wonderful yeah but to reverse it might be a bad idea you know the folks in your church on sunday aren't going to call stephen furtick or you know uh john piper or tim keller or whoever they're not going to call those guys when tragedy strikes their home uh, they're going to call you but they're only going to call you if they know they can count on you right and so, you know, yeah, it's important. That's huge. Okay, so Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy all contain the judicial dictum, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Mm -hmm. This is part of the Old Testament law. This part of the Old Testament law is a prescription of proportion for magistrates and judges to use when determining the punishment for criminals. It is not an injunction for indiv an individual to take personal revenge. If our Christian aim is for the punishment to fit the crime, how should pastors draft justice into their church's punitive policies? And should the condition of a person's heart or their deepest motivations factor into the way a church interprets malfeasance or when someone does something wrong? How should pastors... Well, we'll get into the second, this add-on question after, but let's just stick with those two. Um, what should a... In light of the fact that we seem to have a scriptural principle that suggests that the punishment should fit the crime, 
Uh-huh. How should we draft? We don't want to lose justice when we're coming up with the way that we're going to carry out punishment inside the church. Because we had talked earlier that a lot of times when these kind of conflicts and messiness ari- arises, we try to solve those internally. Yeah. And that requires that we have a punitive policy, which which presents some form of justice. What What would you say for somebody who's maybe starting out a church or is planting a church and is assembling his board and is, is kind of weighing up how much justice versus how much mercy he wants to put into his punitive policy. And maybe it's, maybe it ends up being the case that his punitive policy is not particularly rigid. Maybe it's more dynamic and fluid and it's case by case. And that leads us into that second question of whether or not a person's heart or their, their the condition of their hearts or their deepest motivation should impact the way we weigh up their yeah. sin. Well, the first thing that I would say is, you know, I, I cringe a little bit with the the term punitive policy because I don't think that a church's discipline should be punitive in its aim. It should be corrective, right? And so that doesn't mean that we don't discipline. It just means that it's a different aim because punitive means is, is punishment, right? And the aim of the church is never to punish. In fact, what we believe is that from a punitive standpoint, the justice of God has been satisfied in the cross of Jesus, mm. right? And so... So there's there's no punishment that needs to be meted out. Uh, there is correction that needs to be had. Uh, that, though, is largely going to depend on the individual, right? It, and that speaks to that second question about someone's heart. If someone is willing to come under correction, if someone is repentant, if someone uh, is, you know, willing to go through a disciplinary process and be in a rest- restoration process, because that's always the aim. If you look mm-hmm. at scripture, it's to restore a brother, right? To restore someone. And so if someone is willing to walk through that disciplinary process and be restored, then then you you walk with them and you celebrate and you get... and uh, If someone's not willing to uh, walk through restore restoration process come under discipline that kind of thing then you know scripture is clear that like you you treat them like an unbeliever so that doesn't mean you're not kind to them it doesn't mean you you don't love them but it means that they're not they're not in fellowship in in the mm-hmm. same way as folks who are walking uh, you know, in godly community together, and who are submitted to the authority of the gospel, to the authority of God, to the authority of God's word, to the authority of the church. You know, those are those are different things. Mm-hmm. Um, but from a justice standpoint, like like I said, we believe that the you know justice was satisfied in the cross of Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. and so there's there's no punishment that we need meet out for anything. Yeah. So how how is like this idea of a sin is a sin is a sin. We hear that a lot in church. Um, when you think about something like the injunction against murder, yeah. um, I asked a pastor once if this injunction applies to like a veteran who comes back from combat and has killed enemy soldiers. Yeah. Now, so this this is a to me a separate question because discipline in the church and discipline in government, you know, or or justice in terms of government are different things. The Bible does address them both. Uh, I think, it, you know, um, and I'm not I'm not going to advocate for or against the death penalty uh, today, but I will say this: that Scripture does seem to delineate between killing and murder. There's there's a separate. But the, so the delineation is along the dimension of motivation, though, right? Like it, it, it's it's uh, the reason for why the action happened distinguishes it between killing and murder. Yeah. So if if 
if a killing is accidental, for example, Scripture says that's not murder, right? That that person who accidentally kills someone can run to a city of refuge, right? Mm-hmm. And they're protected there, uh, which in, under under the American justice system would be innocent until proven guilty, right? So they are protected until a proper investigation can be made. Until I, so so you know, and then if it's determined well that it was accidental, then then they are relieved of culpability, right? But it's when we, when we kill with intent, if it's in anger, uh, if it's premeditated, if it's, you know, all those kind of things. Um, soldiers in war were not held accountable for murder in, in Scripture. Um, you know, so there are, there are uh, if someone was a murderer and they were executed, those who carried out the execution were not considered murderers. So that, that was a that's killing as opposed to murder. Murder is about intent, um, and so you know, uh, I think that's the distinction that Scripture makes. Okay, so knowing that actions, certain actions, are qualified by their preceding circumstances or their preceding motivations or their preceding reasoning, does that change the way that we assess sin inside the church? Like, so for instance, I don't know whether to have, I don't know what's more dangerous, having a low resolution understanding of sin and like the conditions of a person's heart, Uh the motivations of a person's heart, or this idea that the, the, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, like that, that, that kind of <laughs> yeah. trope, I guess we could call it. Um, both there's danger on both sides of this issue. And I'm not sure, like, does that just mean that we need to carefully assess each individual? Uh, I mean, I, I guess the short answer would be yes. Uh, so, um, I think so. In this, in the Old Testament, for especially, there there are there's a kind of a delineation between sins and transgressions, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you transgress the law. You could even do that accidentally. I mean, think about right. think about if you're you're driving 55 uh, and you don't see the sign that that lowers the speed limit to 35 and right. you just keep driving 55 and you get pulled over. Well, you were unaware. It was unintentional, but there's still a consequence for that action. Uh, the police officer still could give you a ticket for it, right? Uh, and so... Um, so there, there's a there's this idea that we can transgress, but once we're made aware, then we then we need to adjust our behavior, right? So there may be things mm-hmm. that you're doing in your life uh, that, that you don't even know the Bible prohibits those things. Maybe you've been a Christian for just a short time, and you don't know what the Scripture says about that, and that's what you were doing before, and you didn't know it was a problem, and you know, and so you're transgressing, but but it's not a an intentional thing. It's not a uh, a rebellious you know it's not like you're not doing it in spite of knowing that it's yeah uh, you know and so but then if you're made aware of that right if once you become aware then you're culpable right then it's like okay well i have to adjust my behavior i have to i have to change this thing that i'm doing i need to repent of this thing lord i'm sorry that i've been living in this way i'm sorry that i had this blind spot that i you know and and Mm -hmm. i'm turning around and going the other way sin on the other hand uh, is a willful and intentional disobedience um, to 
either the laws of man or God or, you know, and that's a different thing. And that has to be dealt with differently. Yeah. And I think about, and and I want to get to this distinction between transgression, transgression and sin, because it's really interesting to me. Um, I think we can even make the example even more ethically muddy in a sense of imagine you're speeding and you know, you're speeding, but you're speeding because your sick child needs to get to the hospital Uh in a certain amount of time. So then there we have an issue of, because I can see your point in Leviticus that it's, it seems to suggest that the atonement comes after guilt is made aware. Uh-huh. Like that it's, it's not like, okay, this person has no idea what they did, make them atone. And I mean, it, there seems to be just this emphasis on when they're made, when the guilt becomes yeah. aware, then atonement comes. And so there is that element of just not knowing. And I think that that is um, somewhat morally exculpatory because you're just ignorant like right. you're just, you, you don't you're not acting malevolent malevolently the way someone else might be um but then there are there are circumstances which seem like they justify transgression and i don't really know what to do with those <laughs> and like for, for instance the example of the sick child in the back of your car right. and you're speeding it's like or in scripture when rahab lies right. to protect the spies uh-huh yeah and maybe those things are just maybe that's the territory where we're like, okay, we're not God, and so we can't yeah. we can't completely accurately measure up whether a person is like the the depth of a person's depravity with so, regards to a particular action. So I think that what we see in Scripture, and certainly someone can feel free to to disagree with me on this. Uh, we can discuss it, uh, but but what what I tend to see, what I see in Scripture, is that people supersede the law that people are more important than the law. So take, for example, Jesus, when he's confronted about the Sabbath, and he says, if your ox is in the ditch on the Sabbath, you're going to get it out. And no one's going to consider that a transgression of the Sabbath, right? Because your na- Or your neighbor's ox is in the ditch, and you help him get that out, right? So you've worked on the Sabbath, right? Because you've, you've helped him to get his ox out of the ditch. He's worked on the Sabbath because his ox is in the ditch. And, you know, and so... But no one considers that a transgression of the Sabbath because it is an act of kindness, an act of serving your neighbor, right? If your kid is sick in the back of the car, well, you turn on the hazards and you speed if you have to Mm -hmm. because your kid is more important than the speed limit law, Mm -hmm. right? Now... That law even is in place not because they people don't they don't want you to drive fast. Right. That law is in place to protect people. Yeah. Right? That's that's a great point. Yeah. The speed limit is a reflection of how we value human life. Exactly. Exactly. Which is exactly what the laws of God are as well. Right. Uh, and and we can talk about the Levitical codes and that kind of thing. I'm not discussing all of that right now. But when you look at the Ten Commandments in particular, right? The 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 first three. Is it the first three? Uh, that they discuss our God's relationship to man or man's relationship to God, right? Uh, you shall have no other gods before me. You know, honor the Sabbath uh, and uh, no graven images, right? No idols. And then the rest are about people's relationship to one another. That's why Jesus said mm-hmm. that all the law and all the prophets can be summed up in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and spirit and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Those are the two great commandments, and everything hinges on that. And so if what I am doing is motivated out of my love for God and my love for others, well, Paul said, there's no law against that. <laughs> yeah. And, and so 
linguistically, it's equivalent to saying that the spirit of the law is love God and love your neighbor. Right. And we don't want to lose the spirit of the law for the sake of the letter of the law, because then we lose the whole purpose of the law. And we, if we lose the purpose, we, we sever our relationship with God and we sever, we, we become blind to the way that God sees people and the way that he sees us. And yeah. all of those things happen at the same time. And it's just not good. And, and so then the weakness becomes, there's probably people thinking, well, what if someone is, um, what if someone just says that they're doing something because they love others or they love God? And, and and I think the answer to that is, oh, well, it's hard to live in a fallen world. Like we can't know <laughs> whether or not they're lying, but God knows. Right. And that's like the, I think this is part and parcel of working out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's like, we might be able to, we might be so Machiavellian that we can convince everyone around us that our motivations are pure and that, that we're doing something for the right reasons. <laughs> But you're not going to trick God. Right. Well, and I think that eventually our motives will bear themselves out anyway. So, uh, you know, if um, if you've got a friend, for example, who is um, an alcoholic or an addict or uh, is participating in some destructive behavior that's going to be detrimental to their family or detrimental to them, uh, you may you may even convince yourself that you're not saying anything to them about it because you you love them, right? I'm just going to accept them how they are. I'm just going to love them. and uh, But that's about the least loving thing you can do is right. watch them drive themselves off a cliff, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so our motives will bear themselves out eventually. That that motivation is really more about I don't want to, I don't want to, create conflict or I want to, you know, avoid uh, a discomfort on my part or what, you know, is it, that's really what's driving that. But we couch it in love. We say it's love. Uh, and meanwhile, we watch our friend, you know, like I said, drive themselves off that metaphorical cliff. Um, that's not loving. It's not loving. Um, and so, you know, it behooves us to ask ourselves, am I truly acting in a way that is loving toward this person? So yeah. the, the Pharisees, Jesus talked to them about this, uh, you know, like you, you, you make up all these rules and you, you load these, you know, lo- you put these huge loads on people's back and you're not doing a thing to help them lift them, you know? So, uh, you know, one of the phrases that he used in regard to the Pharisees was that, you know, you ignore the weightier matters of the law, you know? Yeah. And so, and I think it's unwise for a person to think that if they are disguising their own motives as something else. So for instance, in the illustration that you used, um, if you're too, if your cowardice is too potent that you won't engage in conflict to pull that person away from the precipice, there's going to be a point where you come into contact with the real reason why you didn't do that. And it's probably going to manifest itself as extraordinary shame and guilt yeah. when the person dies absolutely, or when something happens to the person, then the, the questions flood in, like, what could I have done? And the answer is maybe you could have done a lot. Yeah. Like we t- kind of tell people, um, I think it's like, it tends to be best practice in the wake of a death or something that happens to, try not to blame the person, the surviving person. Like, you know, you don't want (laughs) to cast that on them. You certainly don't want to cast that on them unrightfully, you know, or unnecessarily. Yeah. But sometimes it's the case that, yeah, you could have done something. Sure. And you'll, you don't even need anyone to tell you that. I'll give you an example. Uh, I had a friend, his name was Stacy. I went to high school with him. Uh, I would have been in my early twenties at this point. 
and I had already moved away from my hometown, but I had gone back to see my family. So I was in town for a few days. I happened to run into him at, at a local grocery store, like in the parking lot, right? I felt strongly that I should say something to him. I talked to him for a few minutes and I did invite him to church because I was going to be in town for church that weekend. And I invited him to church because he had been, uh, he had been a part of our church when I was in high school, but had drifted away, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and I felt strongly that I needed to say something to him. And I invited him to church, but I didn't go as far as I felt like I should have. I really felt like I like I felt like I needed to ask him how he was doing, you know. And um, the the sad end of that story is that a few days later, Stacy shot and killed himself. Right yeah. now, could I have st- prevented him from from taking his own life? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But what I do know is that. I felt like I should have said something and I didn't. So I did not act lovingly towards Stacy in that moment. Mm-hmm. And, and your, your, your interaction with the Holy Spirit in that moment was enough to let you know, okay, yeah, I was led and I didn't follow. 100%. And no, so no one had to come in and say to you, because probably, I mean, if, if I'm understanding the story right, no one saw the interaction. Like no, nobody, you, you were with him. Yeah, it was just me just and Stacy. Yeah. And you, that's when you had the intimation, like I need to say yep. something. And so you have that and, you know, there's forgiveness for everything, but like if in, in retrospect in, for anyone listening, why put yourself through that if you don't have to? Yeah. And right. And so like, this is one of the things every time I'm at a funeral, I think this, like what, what funerals do for me more than anything <laughs> is they remind me why I'm trying to do what I'm trying to yeah. do. And it's like, we can't escape the the reality if we don't step up in a moment then we can't escape the outcome of not stepping up so often and i think i think you were wise in saying that i don't know whether or not my action determined his outcome but but all that matters to you if i'm understanding this correctly is that you do you do understand the conviction that you felt in the moment and you do understand that you didn't follow it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and you know, uh, I don't know, this is, I didn't know this was where this conversation was going to go, but like, so one of the things that I've had to contend with both, both from that moment as I've reflected on it and just other things throughout my life is that I was more concerned with Stacy's possible rejection of me than I was with being obedient to Christ in that moment. And it was it's because, um, you know, I, I listened to a lie that basically says that that this person that I'm talking to, Stacy in this particular instance, that his opinion of me was more valuable than, it was weightier than, like mm-hmm. that, that somehow it, I, it in, you know, uh, impacted my identity or, you know, so I, I was... If you if you know if you will, I was listening to an orphan spirit that says I need acceptance from this other person, rather than the spirit of adoption in Christ that says that I am approved of and accepted and made a part of the family of God in a way that is far superior to 
anything else I can experience in this life. And that that's the thing that I should draw my, my worth and my identity from. And that as I live out of the security of that identity, then I can speak truth and love to somebody without yeah. fear of, of how they might respond. And knowing that I'm not responsible for how they respond. I am responsible to be faithful to carry the gospel and to be faithful to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, knowing that he's with me and that that's all that really matters. Yeah, and if you have that security, then you're less motivated towards self-deception. So for instance, I imagine someone who, like if you go through a circumstance like the one that you told the story about, um, and maybe like a couple days in the aftermath, if someone were to ask you, oh, well, why didn't you say something? I know for me, it would be really tempting to just come up with a reason why I didn't say something. Mm-hmm. Oh, I was, I was late to pick up my medicine or, you know, right. I, was, <clears throat> I was on my way to an appointment. But we can't get past the conviction. Like we could tell ourselves that, yeah. but we can't get past the conviction of knowing and knowing that God knows. And then we have that to carry. Yeah. But Michael, even if, even if I was running late for an appointment, what's more valuable Mm-hmm. that I make my appointment on time or that I make a, an investment in, in that person that I'm standing in front of in that moment that, that very well could mark their eternity. Like, you know, what, what's, what's more valuable? What, what, what's more important? Uh, and the, the unfortunate thing is that we often choose the less important thing. Yeah. We often choose the temporary thing over the eternal thing. And pastors, man, let me challenge you. That thing that maybe you are, that, that thing you know that you should do in regard to your church in, as far as shifting culture or making a change in the organization or changing how you do something or whatever it might be, and you keep convincing yourself that the reason you're not doing it is pragmatic. And really, it's because you're afraid of man and wanting mm-hmm. to please man rather than God. And that, you know, I don't want to be that guy, right? Yeah. And and I'll be honest, that's I can tend toward that. I want everybody to be cool. I want everybody to be happy with me. I don't want to rock the boat. That's my that's my general personality. I'm really agreeable. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not always the best way and that's not always the way of God. Yeah, that's that's such a perspective shift that you're articulating there. Just this idea that keeping what's important at the front of your attention all the time, every day, in all of your movements. And I think when you start to do that, one of the things that um, when I was going through training, uh, one of the pastors told me that the most important compliment that he ever had was that someone said to him, he's never in a rush. Like he never seems like he's in a hurry. Yeah. And that's like a really hard skill to master. (laughs) You know, it sounds, it sounds simple, like just, okay, just don't be in a hurry, but it requires a constant, this, this perspective that you're articulating, it's, it goes so much against the grain in so many ways that it is a discipline. It's a spiritual discipline to continuously remind yourself of what's important in the sight of God. Yeah. But when you do that, you're able to walk in the right way. Yeah. I mean, I often think when you talk about not hurrying, I often think about the, the section of scripture uh, where Jesus is on his way, like the, this, is it Jairus's servant that shows up and says, my master's, my master's daughter is dying, right? She's sick, come, and, and, and Jesus is on his way to Jairus's home. 
And it's it's in that it's in that movement from where he was to Jairus's home that the woman the crowds are around him and the woman with the issue of blood touches the hem of his garment. Uh, and, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna not remember all of this accurately. I don't think, but I think if I remember correctly, I'd have to go back and look. But there are three different times that Jesus stops on his way to Jairus's house. Right, the daughter is dying. It if there's if there's ever a time when you think, oh man, I need to Jesus, you need to hurry. Mm-hmm. This is it. Yeah, and Jesus stops three different occasions and meets these people's needs. Um. And I don't, I don't, I don't know that we ever see a place in Scripture where Jesus is in a hurry. I can't think of one, and it's it's really shocking to think about too, because it's like, yeah, the the, the dying daughter, like for, for for any of us, that would put us in such a tunnel vision mm-hmm. that we'd probably get into a car accident because we don't <laughs> we don't see what's yeah. around us. We're so locked in on what we're trying to do, and. I think that we do that because of our human desire to control in a sense, because we yeah. want to, if, if I have the faith to stop three times on the way to an emergency, then I have, my faith is explaining in that moment. It's expressing that I understand that whether I'm in a hurry or not, this grand narrative is not under my control. It's under God's control. Yeah. And that, really, if I'm just faithful to be present maximally in each moment, mm-hmm. like we don't even know what that does to a person. This is part of the, the, the secularists kind of have, they try to apprehend this, the benefits of this through something like meditation, where it's just the idea of just being present, absolutely present in every moment that you're in and just seeing what's around you and, 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 and taking in the stream of consciousness. And for a Christian, if you do that, I think that you'll notice all kinds of things yeah. that you that you're just filtering out otherwise. You know, if you have if you have a thing that you value tremendously and it's not a thing that is of God, but it's of your own ambition, that value is going to create a filter through which you see everything else. Yeah. And you're gonna miss all kinds of things that God is trying to show you and that He's trying to do through you because of that filter. And I think you're right. Like if Jesus can do this on the way to an emergency when someone's actually dying, there's no reason why we can't do it in our day to day. Um, and maybe part of that is when it comes for, for pastors trying to establish the culture in their church, maybe they establish a culture where that kind of radical presence and attention is actually possible. So for instance, maybe the, the, you don't come down as hard on people for being late to an appointment if the reason they were late was because they were doing something that was, you know, that God gave them to do. And yeah. yeah, I don't know if that creates issues for how we work with each other and like how we run an organization. <laughs> Seems like it would create a lot of issues, but but at the same time, I can't I can't dispute the importance of it. Yeah. I really can't. Yeah. Like, that seems like that's what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, and I think that there are times that things are urgent, right? But I think a sense of urgency in a given situation and a sense of hurry are not the same thing. Um, and I think it should influence the way that we lead, the way that our organizations run and are, and, and are governed, the way that we, you know, um, yeah, it, we miss a lot because we're in a hurry. 
Yeah. And we're often in a hurry when we don't need to be. In fact, I don't know if you're familiar with the term hurry sickness. Mm -hmm. Um, So there were these cardiologists, um, Meyer Friedman and Ray Rosenman, and they coined this term. And they noticed that a lot of their patients were suffering from this kind of um, constant sense of hurry. This, Hmm. you know, yeah. And so they defined it as this. They said it was a continuous struggle and unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time. Um, and they've, they found that it like has all kinds of impacts on our physical, oh, uh, yeah. our physical well-being, right? And all the, so because what happens is that it, uh, you know, there's that, the, uh, uh, what's uh, adrenaline, right? So it, we're kind of on this low level adrenaline drip all the time because it's, it triggers our kind of fight or flight response system, mm-hmm. you know? And so your body's not created to have adrenaline all the time. Like it's, it's like if you're, you know, let's say you're a race car and you have, you know, the nitrous oxide, right? You can't put nitrous through an engine all the time. It will blow it up, right? It's only, you only use it in short spurts for, you know, for its intended purpose. Well, that's what adrenaline is supposed to function like in our bodies, right? But if we're getting that kind of all the time at low levels, it creates this kind of sense of anxiety, causes yeah. high blood pressure, it can cause heart problems and all that. And then, you know, there's just this sense of, uh, you know, just, just generalized anxiety that we live with all the time because we feel like hurry, 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 and it's killing us. Oh, yeah. So you can't, it's so dangerous to define your success based on how many things you can get done and how little time. And, and, and so it's not just specific things. It's just, I think you can see a world in which you define your success by accomplished things and it doesn't yeah. matter what they are. Right. If I can mop the floor in 10 minutes, yeah. that's a win. Yep. And then you start doing that with every single thing <laughs> that you have around you. And all of a sudden you're in this positive feedback loop of stress and anxiety and yeah. rush and all this. And one of the things, so when you think about combating that, like you can think, okay, we'll just slow down. But the problem with that is, well, if I slow down, then I'm not going to be able to achieve my goals as well. So here's something that I've done that has been, I I don't know if it's effective. I think it might be, but I might just be causing my own different kind of positive feedback loop. Uh, Narrow the set of things that you can accomplish that you register as accomplishments. So I have a very, very specific set of things that I want to become accomplished at and all the other things, they don't matter as much to me. And that's the only way that I can keep my sanity in some sense and also try to work really, really hard. But I don't know if that's the right thing either, because it's possible. What is the case is even if you have a narrow set of things that you pursue voraciously, you're still going to miss a lot of the things that God's bringing into your life because you're, you have a narrow focus, which, which is the opposite of paying attention to your surroundings. Like that's what (laughs) focus does. It allows you to, you know, we don't want to completely lose our ability to focus, but, but man, the, 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 the hundred thousand dollar question here is where you balance it, where you balance, you know, your pursuits versus your simple observation and your, your faith to react to God's leadership of your life. Yeah. It's a tough one. You know, and 
And of course, there are all kinds of practical things that you can do. And uh, I mean, there are books that you can read about time management and all that stuff is good. Uh, There's a great book. It's not a time management book, uh, but a great book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer that addresses a lot of these things. And it's, you know, um, so there are practical things that we can do. But I think for me, right, the thing that I always come back to uh, is that my my need to hurry and to get all the things done uh, stems from oftentimes my forgetfulness about God's sovereignty, that mm-hmm. he's in control, that the world's not going to fall apart if I don't get everything checked off my to-do list today. And, and, and that really uh, what I have found is that if I, if I actually, when I slow down, uh, that my head is clearer and I actually tend to get more done than I do when I'm trying to rush through and hurry and like, get everything done as quickly as I can. Yeah, and you're able to do it joyfully, yeah. which I think is what that, you know, that's joyful service is what God wants from us. Like it's, it's yeah. not, it, it is a sacrifice, but it's not a panicked, frantic, like if, if our service to God causes us to act panicked and frantic and in a rush all the time that is not what jesus act, acted like that's not christ right and so we can know that while what we're doing might be godly and might be important for the kingdom we're not doing it in the right way and yeah. i think that the way matters a lot here and i think that like what you're what you're speaking here is important that if you can slow down and clarify then you can do it joyfully and if you can do it joyfully you'll do a better job absolutely you know and i uh, this isn't, well, it's kind of adjacent, I guess, that I keep thinking about this. You know, I think it was FDR who said uh, that what is important is rarely urgent and what is urgent is rarely important. Um, and I think it's important. It's a lot of importance. Uh, <laughs> I think it's wise for us to remember that and to focus on what is most important. And often it is not the thing that is urgent, right? I am the worst when it comes to like, uh, whatever's whatever's in front of me is what I'll do. Whatever you know, the squeaky wheel gets greased first. That whole kind of yeah. thing. Like I I I can fall into that trap easily if I allow myself to. Uh, and because I want people to like me so much, uh, like if somebody calls and says, "Oh, can I come and sit? Can I talk to you?" I've got, I'll say yes. Uh, and that's not always wise. That's not always the thing mm-hmm. I should do, because. While it may be urgent for them, that may not be the most important thing. Right. And it may not be as urgent as they think it is, right? So, like, for example, if someone's calls and their marriage is in crisis, let him get there overnight, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to fix it in an hour of sitting down with them, mm-hmm. right? So I have to then weigh in that moment, okay, uh, is is the thing that I am engaged in currently more important than this hour I'm going to spend with them? Or would I be better served to say, hey, I've got an hour tomorrow afternoon. Can we sit down then? And and then and then continue to be focused on the task that I need to be focused on that, you know. Uh, and sometimes the answer to that is yes, that I, I need to, to put that off and say, hey, you, I need you to wait until tomorrow. Let's sit down tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You, you know, uh, sometimes it may be more important to sit down with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have to be discerning in that and go, okay, yeah, I, th- I think I should 
you know, so hey, come on in, let's talk. Yeah. Okay. So you've you've set up you set up for us a I think what is a really wise set of parameters that pastors can use to further facilitate their yes being their yes and their no being their no. And we can end on this. I think this is a great place to kind of circle it back. The parameter is some things are important, but not urgent. Mm -hmm. And those are the things like the marriages that that you were talking about. Like, you know, like it's not going to 48 hours isn't going to change the last 15 years. Although it is important that I meet with you. Yes. I can can engage it properly. And, And if I don't do that right, I run the risk of losing my yes being my yes and my no being my no because if i constant if i'm telling 15 different couples yeah well let's meet tonight let's meet tomorrow night like what you know and if i treat all of those things as urgent probably i'm not going to be able to hit all of them and then i've then i've betrayed them on a meeting over something that is actually really important to them yeah so important but not urgent right and then we have things that are urgent but not important mm-hmm. and i think these are these are most often the ones that are uh you know people get into the, they're, they're, they've hyped themselves up over something and they're just like, Oh, I, I really need to meet now. Yeah. But the thing that they're meeting about is it's not going to a year from now, they're going to laugh about it probably because yeah. it's not super important. And then you have the things that are important and urgent. And I think that those are the the major life changing. Those are the conversations in, in the parking lots. You know, those are the, those are the conversations about, yeah. like you said with Stacy, like, those are the ones that are, and, and those are the ones I think that can be hard to spot, but I think that the spirit of God helps yeah. us in spotting well, that's, those. That's, you know, that's the wife who calls and says, my husband just collapsed and had a heart attack and I, I don't know what to do, right? Well, you drop what you're doing and you go and you, you, you pastor them, right? You walk with them in that season. You do that. So that's both urgent and important, right? Uh, and so, and and sometimes those aren't as easy to see as that. Sometimes they're not as clear cut as that. But, but man, yeah, those are the things like you drop everything mm-hmm. and you, and you go and you take care of that. All right. Well, this is, uh, I think that's a good, um, tool that we can leave our listeners with. And I think that, um, yeah, getting that right is super important for pastoral ministry for all the reasons that you laid out guys. Thanks for joining us for the back 40 leadership podcast. It's been, it's been good and we will see you in the next episode. If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcasts.church. Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and we will see you in the next episode.